And this was the type of cover where you had to sit with scissors and, and razor blades and cut up little pieces and then kind of glue them together. It, it was... Exactly. That, that's all told in that, uh, in that graphic novel. Oh. You can see it when I cut out the little eyes out of a magazine and how they, uh, all, these, uh, all these things actually flew out of the window because there was a draft suddenly, and they all flew from the third floor. They flew down out, outside. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I caught them all, and I was lucky. So I, I, those are the things which are in that book. Welcome to this week's One Latest Fam. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. I can guess you're not spending $600 on the new McCartney singles box. You can guess that, can you? Uh, <laughs> well, if I'm not, and I don't believe Lonnie is. That's just for a special audience. I thought about it, but it would take me forever just to play the 80 singles, although the book does look really, really nice. Right. And they are going to do it digitally as well. So hopefully the book gets out sometime soon. Even if I had ended up buying it, I would have probably done most of my listening to the digital version. And it's nice of Paul to actually put out most of this stuff. I mean, you know, we've talked about occasionally that there are handfuls of songs that have been on his singles that have yet to make their digital debut. Well, well, that's true. Most of them will now. Yeah. Now they'll be out. I'm still waiting for an album that comes out of McCartney and Costello's demos. More than what's in the flowers box. Well, if they'd finish them. It's true. But, you know, there's like, I don't remember how many songs, 25? And there's some that have not been issued. I mean, I love 20 Fine Fingers, and there's no real good recording of it. The demos are clear demos. Right. Nobody has ever recorded it yet. What's another one? Tommy's Coming Home? Is that it? Yeah. That's a good one. And even putting That Day Is Done, both of their versions back to back, because they do them so differently. I'd love to hear a solo version of Veronica from Paul. Yeah. I think we'll probably be talking more about singles next week, both in the box. And he's putting out a box with 80 singles, and he's not releasing all of them. There's still like, you know, four or five, which are not in that box. Well, that's silly. So, yes. We are on to week four, I guess. We are. The second... Uh... Outtakes disc from Revolver, yep. Yeah. Up front, a little bit of news. The Revolver box ended up at number four on the U.S. album charts 
In Norway, it ended up number six. Although in Germany, it actually hit the top of the charts. Well, they're big in Germany, you know. Yes, and also, apparently, uh, there's a big swell of national pride for Klaus. Oh, there you go. You know, you need to take every little reason for buying it, and that's a good promotion for Germany. And then uh, the main competition, Taylor Swift, we got the outtakes from the photo session for Rolling Stone of Paul with Taylor Swift. I've already posted those on the group. They're actually a lot of fun. The two of them just kind of fooling around. I like them both very much. So it's good to see them working together. Now they should actually work together. Yeah, I think we kind of know that McCartney is a talent, and I think that Taylor Swift is too. People still think that she's a kid, but she's 33? She's been putting out records for a long time. She has been putting out records longer than the Beatles did as a group. It's been over a decade since she had her first real big hit. She started out in the country end of things, right? Right, which is not to be totally dismissed. I mean, you know, she had quite a few hits uh, at that point and has been doing videos ever since she had, what was that song, Tim McGraw? Yeah, and then Paul is, of course, a fan. They were together at the after party of the SNL 40th, and Paul said, let's do Shake It Off. That's great. And Dave Grohl has a story how Taylor saved him because he, he just had this fright that at this party – People wanted him to do something in front of Paul, a solo, and he, he just kind of freaked out and was trying to figure out, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then Taylor jumped up and says, I have something. <laughs> I said to my wife, I'm like, okay, 1030, and we got it. We're out. 1030, we got to split. And right at 1030, the party started getting really good. Right. <laughs> like, really good. Wow. And... Uh, and so Paul got up and started playing the song on piano, and it was a new song, and it was, it was amazing just to sit in this living room and watch him play a piano. And he finished, and then everyone turned to me and said, like, all right, Dave, play a song. <laughs> and I can't play piano, and I was a little out of sorts at that point. And all the guitars are left-handed, and I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? And right at that moment, Taylor Swift stands up. She goes, I'll do a song. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And so she saved my ass. She's complete, yes. Saved and you she right gets there up and then. she starts playing this song. And it sounds familiar. And I'm just, I'm kind of a little bit out of it. And I'm looking at my wife like, what is this song? I know this song. What is this song? And she was playing the Foo Fighters song, Best of You. On <laughs> And, own song. No, I mean, it was like one of those nightmares where you're running backwards and you can't, like, everything was just, and I kind of just slumped down like, oh, God, this is, this is, but she was singing it, so, it was so beautiful. Of course. It sounded so great. And so then I got up next to her and started singing along, singing with her. Yeah. Because I sang it the way I sing it. I'm like, I got it, I got it, And this, you know, at, next to Paul and piano and those. yeah, it was crazy. But you never, you always get a little nervous when you're playing with them. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast, uh, Dana Carvey's podcast, and Lauren Michaels was saying that uh, no, no, we we didn't really have any music planned for the after party. You know, we we just had a DJ and stuff. But I still had a full stage set up, an instrument set up on the stage. So you know, I knew people would want to go and play something. Right. Well, you know, he's been doing it a while, too. <laughs> All right. On to the Outtakes Disc 2 with 
the second version, take five, the man your bird can sing, back into the arrangement that we know. Quite, quite brisk, uh, moderato, foxtrot. Is it? Oh, of course, I couldn't see. One, two, three, four. Oh, no, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, kind of. More sparse, and it, it's more forceful. It's really a bit more rocking, actually. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and the, the guitar is simpler, and uh, I think that they had yet to really kind of go, hey, we should both do this or something, you know. There were still ideas being worked on. The intro's not there yet. The three-guitar intro is, doesn't quite exist yet. And, you know, it's funny, listening to it, there is a section of Oz that they sing. I'll be round. And I think you said it it reminds you of flying. Yeah, exactly. But actually, it reminds me of our theme song. <laughs> the theme song we're getting rid of in the near future. <laughs> hint, hint. Right. I'm just saying, wow, they're doing that song. <laughs> I will also mention that to Jay Young. You know, thumbs up again. It's as we were saying last week, it's very much an intermediate to the final version. It's getting there. That was Anya Birkin singing a neat little treat. And you can see how they got from there to here. Although I actually don't see how they got from there to here. It may be what you were saying. It may be that they decided, okay, we're going to start more in with this riff. Yeah. That then changes the whole arrangement. I'm now kind of fascinated as to hear if there are outtakes of rubber soul because i i wonder is this a new way of working for them where they're really trying different versions or are they coming in with songs not as worked out as they normally are i don't know and i'm kind of interested to know how they worked on rubber soul here they're constantly changing things Hopefully that's next year if we <laughs> if we don't get the other box, which people are starting to whisper about, is the one you want, a 67, 68 box to get the Magical Mystery Tour and the Yellow Submarine stuff out. But we'll see. Be still my beating heart. <laughs> I haven't heard anything concrete. It's just kind of whispers. Really? I'd really love to hear Food on the Hill done with Giles. Well, and Hey Jude for that matter. Oh, yeah, there's that song. It's on the White Album, but he didn't do a Giles mix on it. Right. We're jumping all over the place here. Most likely, Rubber Soul is the next one, but we'll see. Yeah. Listening to Andrew Burke sing, they're clearly trying a bunch of stuff. And that kind of experimentation goes on in the coming songs. And it may have not been on purpose. It may have just been, oh, well, we got the time. Let's see what we can do. Yeah. They had two whole months, basically, to record, as opposed to you know six days over three weeks of time and yet the press was still freaking out <laughs> did they have time i mean clearly they did but is it was their insistence they weren't doing a movie right if they were doing a movie six of those weeks would have been spent on the set right they couldn't go off and judge a beauty pageant or whatever during the day right because they would have had to be on set all day. Track two, one we've had mostly before, it take 11 of Taxman. Right. 
And this is pretty similar to the final version, you know. And what was on anthology, the backing vocals and but you listen to it and you can still tell that things aren't quite right. The anybody got a bit of money. I don't know how they ever thought that was a good idea. Yeah. Another point where George Barton had his head in his hands. They went for the harmony first, and it's like, well, what can we sing? What kind of harmony can we sing? Oh, well, here's some words. Yeah. The taxman at the very end is uh, much closer to my ears to the Batman. You know, Batman. Right. Same harmony, rhythm, everything. Do we know which came first? The show was not on the air in Britain yet, but the record of the theme by the Marquettes was a hit in both the U.S. and the U.K., and that came out in January of 66. Uh huh. So, well, you know, it's not like they would have been sitting there and watching it on television that frequently, but they would have heard the record. Yeah. George being George, it's like, oh, a superhero who steals money. That's the tax man. The Marquette's theme, I don't think that's the one that's actually at the front of the show because it's the Falling's version and, and the Marquette's were a surf band, but. You can draw some lines between that and Taxman. You can find it yeah. on YouTube if you want. Yeah. Well, I'm familiar with the the theme song, of course, but don't know about the record. And we're still seeing riffs on that to this day. Yeah. Well, it's but. such a great piece of music. <laughs> <laughs> and the Beatles never appeared on the Batman show. That would have been something. <laughs> Their cartoon characters could have showed up. That would have been the way to go. Well, I mean, you know, they almost appeared on Doctor Who in 1965. This BBC One. Our next program is due to start just under one minute. Vicky, what year have you got on there? 1965? Come on, come. You've got a television. Show it. I want to watch it. Now, later. Barbara. Now you've scotched my favorite Beatles. 
Vicky, I had no idea you knew about the Beatles. Of course I know about them. I've been to their memorial theatre in Liverpool. Well, what do you think of them, Vicky? Well, they're marvellous, but I didn't know they played classical music. Classical music? <clears throat> get with it, Barbara, get with it. Uh, styles change, styles change. I think you'd better turn it off, my dear. Yes, we're about to materialize. Well, that would have been something. <laughs> they ended up using a clip instead of actually filming something specifically for it. Uh, the, the first doctor, Hartnell's doctor, had this thing called a time-space visualizer, a, a time a time TV set, and I guess it was Vicky, it was one of his companions from the future, said, I want to see some classical music, and they bring up Ticket to Ride. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Okay. And, and the original intent was to actually have them as quasi-old men together, not mm-hmm. quite as old as they are in real life these days, but... Uh, <laughs> But they never found time to actually record it, so they took one of their performance clips and shoved it in there. Ah. So, anyway, on to track three. It's a fragment of I'm Only Sleeping. Yes, and certainly an example of experimentation. Vibraphone's all over the place. So vibraphone is a keyboard percussion instrument, obviously, and it's typically three octaves, although you can buy bigger ones, but this is a standard three octave. And... It has metal bars, which makes it the most similar to what some people are probably familiar with from school band, the beginner bell kit. Uh, a nice one is typically called a glockenspiel. It's kind of cool. It's funny because right around the same time, Brian Wilson was recording, and he used vibraphones in a song called Wind Chimes. And this version of it kind of reminds me of it. to Beatles, back to Beach Boys, back to Beatles. Yeah, the ping pong. Vibrations was not out yet. No, nor was Smile, which is what that was on. But they were working on it. Yeah, it ends with George Martin talking. It's a shame that there's not more of that. The tape just sort of cuts. Right. It's a neat little bit. It's all about the experimentation. That'll be in a box set sometime down the road. All the in-studio chat. (laughs) There is a bootleg box set called Yellow Chatter Custard, which that's what it is. (laughs) For what sessions? Well, whatever they have. Huh. Pretty much from 62 all the way to 70. Not including Get Back stuff, of course. It's like a three or four disc worth of... Of just chat. There's a little bit of music in there, but for the most part, it's just all the chat. That was what we got on Rock Band. Early on in, in the bootleg world, the piece that I heard was Think for Yourself. That was in Yellow Submarine. Yeah, a little part of it. But all that, all the talk where they took that from... 
And you've got time to... Oh, yeah. oh, come on, come on. One, two, one, two, one, two. And you've got time to defy all the things... I don't know. Bomb, what kill you win, Jack? I don't know. And you got time to rectify... That's me. Oh, good luck. And you've got time to rectify all the magic And you've got time to rectify all the things that you should. That was that it. You should. You should have got that me there, boy. I was moving. Until I'd know him to get back in here, you know? He's kind of grooving out of the place, you know? Is he? I can bet that it's just a drawing. Okay. Oh, I've got it now. Listen to this. I'm going to give expression as well. That was really cool to listen to. I like to hear more of that stuff. That would be entertaining. Have you seen Love, the Vegas show? No. If you can find a way, you should uh, make your way to Vegas before it closes, because still, uh, as we hear, it is closing sometime in the next year. I mention this because... There is a Shadow Beatles segment. What's projected is kind of like the cartoon Beatles, but the dialogue is all taken from actual studio chatter. It's priceless stuff. Huh. Interesting. Or hopefully they will film the whole thing and put it out on video one of these days. Or one of the sneaky snakes will put it out somehow. Somehow. But that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's right. What do you think of... I'm only sleeping, done with the vibraphone. I like it, actually. Yeah. There could have been a really cool version where the vibraphone predominated. Yeah. It really appealed to me. I think it would have been weird at the time. Oh, well, this is Revolver. Nothing's too weird for Revolver. Perhaps. We talk about the variety of ways they could have gone, and you know they stumbled into one way, which is absolutely perfect but there's lots of other ways which would have worked pretty much equally as well could well be definitely has a jazzy feel which was not in the genre of the beatles but on revolver when they're doing things like uh for no one and eleanor rigby it would have worked very well as kind of one of the experimentations it actually wouldn't have been quite so drowsy and sleepy Although I'm only sleeping as they did it, he's one of my favorites. This outtake is really two parts, pretty much. Yeah, because they crater at one point. John's not quite completely into it. Or he makes a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he makes a mistake, and then then he starts going off and doing some of his funny John Lennon voices. This stands probably as more of a rehearsal. I guess they didn't like the vibraphone version or thought, well, that's not the way we really want to go with this song now. And so they're trying to figure out the new arrangement more than anything else. Yeah, you can see it definitely developing into something else because they leave the vibraphone arrangement and they go into, you know, this acoustic guitar thing that will once again move into a psychedelic thing. Then we move on to yet another version of I'm Only Sleeping, which is 
again, really cool. So they decided that they were going to go for this hazy, lazy, sleepy kind of feel. So they're trying to recreate the rain thing again. They're going to play very fast and then slow it down. Not quite as fast as they did on the rain take, but, but it is very fast. And in the version that's here, it gives the song a completely different feel. They didn't end up doing that. They had a ex- successful experiment, thought, well, you know, kind of lethargic and make those instruments, you know, stretch out as they slow it down. But it didn't really work, I don't think. I haven't heard it as it would have been slow. also been a little bit strange for john's vocals to have come over that but you know who knows i mean maybe they did try it and they decided it didn't work so yeah but this take is great again like on the rain fast take they're just playing really well together yeah they are and they moved on (laughs) and guess what we have another version of i'm only sleeping yet one more at this point you have to question really (laughs) especially considering Gee, some other tracks get only one, and sometimes not even one version on this set. To have this many versions of I'm Only Sleeping and nothing of Good Day Sunshine. This is a new mix of I'm Only Sleeping, Mono Mix RM1, which is now the fifth official version of I'm Only Sleeping that's available out there. RM5, RM6, RS1, and RS2, which were on the... Mono and Stereo yesterday and today, and then the Mono and Stereo Revolver in the UK. So That's a lot. Oh, and again, on the diversion thing, going way back, there's a guy who's been cataloging all the global officially released variants of Beatles songs, and someone has put together a 33-gig set actually putting them all together, files. So if you want any version that was released anywhere of any Beatles song. I now have those. Wow. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. It's a lot of songs. You'll never hear them all. Well, there's a finite set of what has been released legally throughout the globe. And when are you going to have time to listen to your Wings records? (laughs) That's why I'm not going to sit there and flip 80 sides of vinyl. (laughs) Right. They're just going to use up our time. (laughs) I think Paul's suffering from crate envy. (laughs) That's next week when we talk about Paul and his singles. On to what is actually a uh, pretty cool track. It's Paul and George Martin 
talking together with the string players before take two of Eleanor Rigby. Discussing how to do it, basically, what sounds best to them. Although this does bring up a question for me. You know, George Martin has always told this tale that Paul insisted that there be no vibrato on the violins for yesterday. I don't know, because they don't put vibrato on it. Uh, This is true, but here he has the string players play it with vibrato and then without vibrato, and George just kind of asked Paul, well, which do you like better? Well, I don't really hear that much difference. There wasn't any great insistence from Paul that they go without vibrato. It may have just been the strings. Well, when they go and they play vibrato, it sounds very syrupy, and that's the opposite of what I want. Without necessarily even listening to what it was yeah for the most part they play it dry but there is just a very little bit of vibrato on yesterday right because they had to it just wouldn't have worked completely straight and despite the fact that here they decide that they want to play it mostly dry a a little bit of vibrato still manages to creep in well clearly he didn't hold to that if you listen to uh she's leaving home (laughs) there's vibrato all over the place so George Martin did record it, but the arrangement wasn't George Martin, so... No, this, this is true. And then this goes into Take Two of Eleanor Rigby, which is a lot like the strings-only version on Anthology 2, but it's a different take. It's great to listen to, though. It's such a great arrangement. Oh, absolutely. You can see how consistent the players were at getting the right thing. Yeah. I suppose they put it on there because they wanted to put the chat on there with take two but this is close enough to what's in anthology too it would have been nice to have something else i don't agree really i mean with the talk beforehand you want to hear what they're talking about hear where they actually got you i'll buy that the one thing that is absolutely missing is we got about 30 seconds of paul's original writing demo of eleanor rigby and even though it's incomplete that would have been nice to have here somewhere all the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Yeah, he's pretty tight with his demos. It is believed that the rest of that doesn't exist. That may be another one of John recorded over it. I don't know the origin of how we got that demo on bootleg, but it is out there. And you can even listen to it on YouTube if you want to. So we go from there into take 10 of For No One, the backing track. It's nice. You get to hear everything. Yeah, and it's much better than the version we've had before, what they call the control room monitor mix. Not only did it sound like a recording of a recording, they were in the process of doing the overdubs. I'm glad to have a clean version of it here. Yeah. And it's such a simple song. It's really nice to hear... Paul and Ringo, just the two of them playing together. There's a great line before they start. As Rob Sheffield says in Rolling Stone, it really summarizes Revolver in its entirety. You know, Ringo says, what, shall I just keep it straight then, not do anything else? Then Paul comes back and says, no, do. You want me to just keep it straight? No, try anything, anything that comes into your head. Yeah, but as you said, he's kind of telling Ringo what to play, and so... Ringo's response is, well, what should I do? Just keep it straight then? Well, that's true as well. You can see the origins of what will bother Ringo and the other Beatles later on. Paul wants to have good ideas thrown at him. 
He just wants to have the control to go, nope, not that. He's not as insistent as he was on Maxwell Silverhammer, where he is literally telling Ringo, hit this, now hit this. I want the Tom in the snare in this proximity. Also in there, you, you got Paul just doing just a little bit of scat singing right before shots, which I also like. Even though it doesn't really have that much to do with the eventual feel of the song. Oh, for sure. Take nine. Ten. Well, shall I just keep it straight? Yeah. Don't do anything else. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Just keep We're trying it. all. One, two, three, four. All in all, it's the two of them playing together. This kind of, oh, what would you call it? Baroque. The journalists have always referred to this song as a bit of Baroque rock, which, well, I never really quite got. Now I do. Right. Crack it up on Baroque rock. What the hell is that? <laughs> now on to what, for a lot of people, is the highlight of the set. I don't know <laughs> if it's a highlight, but it's certainly revelatory. John's songwriting work tape of Yellow Submarine. I certainly feel that way because having never heard it, having the song and clearly the very genesis of it, the fact that it alters the narrative of the story of how this song was supposedly written. Do we get how it was written? I'm still a little bit unsure of this chronology. How did they get to the point that, oh, well, I've got this bit and you got that bit and they go together? John's initial demo, it has nothing to do with submarines. It's about where he was brought up, kind of his childhood, although he doesn't say it's his childhood, talking about his town. And then by the time we get to the next demo, which I don't know chronologically whether it was the very next demo, but then they're talking about the sea and the uh, submarines. What that says is that Paul is not lying or hasn't been lying to us over the years. He's just been telling his version of the story, his side of the truth, carefully omitting John Lennon's contribution. You know, he did probably fall off to sleep one night and start, and in that little interregnum before he fell asleep, start thinking about submarines and, you know, yellow and green and blue ones. And as I said, well, maybe he'd watched Thunderbirds earlier in the evening. Clearly when Paul brought it, they hadn't changed the feel of the song. It had a different rhythm. That took a while to change into what we know, the bouncy little thing. As we move on to songwriting work tape part two, there is still a little push and pull between this folky feel that John had and Paul's bouncy, although not quite so bouncy yet, version of what the song would become. No, I wouldn't even say it's bouncy at all at that point. It's still kind of this, as you say, folk approach. Now, do you think that they had decided to give it to Ringo at this point? Was the argument about who would sing it really between the two of them? It's like, oh, well, okay. It's going to be this folk-type song, and either I'll sing it or Paul will sing it. Right. Because, I mean, that's also sort of gone down in history from both of them. It's like, oh, well, we always knew we needed a song for Ringo on this album, and, and we're going to write him one. This doesn't sound like they're writing for Ringo, at least not to me. No, I, I agree. I think they're writing a song, and it becomes something. This is definitely an evolutionary process. That's the cool thing about this set. 
is that you can kind of see how things go. You're going to get a view of how she said, she said worked. Uh, yep. They start in a place and they work on them and it changes. And a simple change of a lyric can take you to another place in other parts of the song. You know, the use of the word submarine took it to a different place. I just thought, so is the whole thing about going to sea, is that about his dad? Yeah, and we kind of lost that in the Ringo version of the song because, I mean, those lyrics are still there. Right. In this version, the most Ringo-esque thing is what they cut out. The whole look out and get down thing. <laughs> right. I would guess this is probably a compressed tape. There's probably some more stuff in between, which they didn't give us. But we do get four different attempts, two complete takes, and then two false starts. Well, you know, all the tapes that Yoko released of John's work, clearly he was an evolutionary type writer. The takes we have of Strawberry Fields, he changes and changes and changes and probably has two cassettes of work on a song and we'll probably never hear those most people would find them completely boring but well i mean even what we get in the boxes wall was not absolutely complete i mean right they're compressing things in there but they're giving us enough there to be able to get a real feel for how john got from his early demo all the way to the finished recording but and people are already saying that's too much right and as you say, people will just get confused in the future. I think there has to be some way to catalog the versions. So you at least know what it is you're listening to. A version of what Taylor Swift is doing, where she re-records a song and puts out Taylor's version. And Taylor's version, in parentheses, is on all the stuff that she's done. Well, I mean, there's legal reasons for that. Well, I know why she did it. I'm just saying, how does a future audience know in the Beatles catalog what was intended? Because there's so many versions. Well, and that's what they did with the Elvis catalog is like, here's the primary catalog and everything else is going out on bootlegs, basically. Or or what Dylan did, everything is going out on the bootleg collection from the Bastard Tapes, but it's recreating classic bootlegs they could have gone that route but i think we're better off since they are going to go ahead and remix everything anyway to just do it this way now we've gone into the studio we come on to yellow submarine take four before the sound effects right that's kind of a weird take first off it is sped up right why i don't know you know i don't get it I don't either. It's not comfortable feeling. It's nothing to do with how they finally wanted it. It's just like, oh, well, let's speed it up and see what it sounds like. Okay. Maybe that's what they did. Perhaps, as we were saying with I'm Only Sleeping, well, no, that's completely wrong. Right. 
I guess it's nice enough to have here the version before the sound effects, but I don't know what this really tells us other than, yeah, they were experimenting in the studio. Yeah, it's probably the least informative of things here. As we live a life of ease, every one of us has all we need. We move on to track number 13, which is Yellow Submarine with the sound effects. Highlighted in the opening little story. I was interested to learn that that was actually based on a real thing. That there was a woman in 1961 who walked across England, a, a very early sort of vegetarian and environmentalist, and that got a fair bit of news coverage, and that would have stuck in the back of their heads, and that's where this little poem comes from. Huh. 1,028 miles spread over 23 days, and all done on salad, grapefruit, cream, bananas, fruit juices, honey, and that great drink, hot water. Dr. Barbara set out to prove that that's the diet if you want to be healthy and energetic, as undoubtedly she must be. But what's John O'Groats to Land's End? Just a stroll to Barbara. Oh, well, okay, that's interesting. This is another not-so-necessary take. I mean, we'd already gotten most of this on the Real Love single. The only thing about this intro is that it's weirdly edited to me. Because he tells a little poem, and he ends it with, we love it. Just as his vocal begins, it's just a weird edit to me. Yellow submarine. And we will march till three the day to see them gathered there. From Lander Groats to John O'Green, with Stepney do we tread. To see us yellow submarine. We love it. In the town where I was born. There's a reason why they cut it. <laughs> right. It doesn't really work. We all live in a yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. Yellow submarine. And our friends are all alone. Many more of them live next door. And the band begins to play. So we can now talk a little bit more about Terry Garr, which we brought up last week. Terry Garr really was around during the Revolver sessions. Right. It's amusing. She's sort of the Zelig or the Forrest Gump of the 60s. Because you know, <laughs> she turns it's up true. everywhere. It's true. She was in like nine different Elvis movies. She was in classic Star Trek. She was in Batman. And on and on, and then through her film work, all the way up to, well, she was Phoebe's mom and friends. Bravo for her agent. <laughs> Apparently, she had a not-so-great childhood and adolescence, which actually isn't too dissimilar from Patty Boyd's young life. And so, she went into show business. She had to make a living for herself. Right. She was a dancer on Shindig, and she was just all over the place, and... I heard a brief interview with her on the uh, the Johnny Carson podcast, a podcast about Johnny Carson, obviously not hosted by Johnny Carson. And she actually tells the story of getting into a limo with 
all four of the Beatles after being in a club. And it's like, wow, that's something. Yeah, that all four Beatles would climb into a cab together. <laughs> you got to hang out with the Beatles. Not many people can say that. Mm-hmm. You rode in a car, not with one Beatle, not with two, not with four three. Of them. What was that like? It was insane. It was just great. We were in England visiting, just uh, on a vacation, my girlfriends and I, and um, we went to. Uh, no, they came to see us. In this apartment that we stayed in, Cass Elliot's apartment. Wait a minute. Cass Elliot's apartment. How does that happen? I don't know if she had an apartment <laughs> Why not? And this was before you were famous. So you were going to England with some friends, and the Beatles came to see you and your friends. We were hoping we would meet them, and we met them there in England. Oh, my goodness. So then you got into a car. Didn't you get to see a recording session with the Beatles as well? Uh-huh, yeah. I have no reason to doubt her on this one. <laughs> I don't either. I mean, I had read she was there that she had claimed or the author had claimed that she had sung on the Yellow Submarine. Could not find any confirmation of her actually singing on it, but it is more likely than not that she was at the session. Right. There was a grand old party where they recorded the sound effects. Right. Cute blonde who'd been in a limo with all four of them. Yeah. Invite her along. (laughs) Right. We'll be arguing whether David Crosby sang on Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> well, since we've already passed the Pepper anniversary box, we'll, we'll have to wait and to see until <laughs> we get the next anniversary box for Pepper. <laughs> I'll listen in. Cool. So w- let's say she sang on it. Or, or she was part of the party. She was part of the party, and Giles did not isolate Terry Carr anywhere in the... uh, Right. So, you know, was she there? Maybe, maybe not. This take, it's another one where I kind of feel that they could have condensed all of this a little bit and given us something else. Well, you know, just it struck me regarding that version that Jeff Emmerich claims that Yellow Submarine was actually the first time that they took tapes and cut them up and threw them around and put that band in. Yeah, but Jeff Emmerich tends to both lie and exaggerate a lot. Well, you know, he was there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At the same time, they say they brought musicians in and played this part, but nobody knows their names. And it's like, you know, every name of every musician that ever played with the Beatles who the flute player was, who played the horns. I mean, the, the fact that they would bring in people. I mean, we know the, the string octet on Rigby. So why would we not know the band in Yellow Submarine? So I say Jeff Emmerich was right. <laughs> who commented that Terry Gar was there other than somebody or possibly Terry Gar herself? Well, exactly like, right. And so, you know. You could argue if they couldn't keep track of Terry Gar, they couldn't keep track of these other musicians. But I don't know. And I mean, we do know that certainly Mal and George Martin and any number of people in the studio were playing a lot of stuff. And, and we know that Brian Jones was there. I mean, he takes credit for the clinking glasses. And so, you know, there's certainly a number of people there involved in merrymaking. Right. And Studio Two is pretty big. Well, who is keeping track? Well, I mean, you know, we've got the whole all things must pass. And since nobody was ever paid for 
clinking glasses and running chains through a tub for the revolver sessions, there would be no record of it. Huh. <laughs> Just a thought. Okay. All right. We move on. George kind of gets short shrift here on this whole deluxe set. Now, Love You Too gets a nice section, but, you know, Taxman, you get the version which both we've both already had, and it's pretty similar to the release version. And for I want to tell you, we only get a minute 21, and most of that is chat. Right. The Daily Beatles site says, is this a case where they just had to trim it down to make sure that things fit on LPs, which is, um, to a certain extent, the same thing that I've been saying, that these bonus discs of late, post-White Album, have been arranged around the running time of vinyl records. Right. So... We do get the nice discussion of the name, and that does, as they say in Hard Day's Night, loom large in George's legend. The fact that he couldn't name anything, and and the joke being that we're going to keep up with his Apple reference. Right. Jeff Emmerich is the one that pops in with Laxton Superb. Right. Maybe there wasn't more to put out. They didn't have much as far as outtakes for Dear Prudence, but they still isolated some things for us on the White Album box. I would have liked to have had that, again, especially since we've got the Mao-ized versions of the isolated tracks. Build something. Right. So, you know, they could have done something for us, and it just reinforces the stereotype George gets screwed. (laughs) Even when he gets three songs on the album, no, no, we we don't need to go into his outtakes. (laughs) Well, although I still like uh, the... What is it? Three versions of "Love You Too." Yeah, no, I mean yeah. They, that that they did, and what it seems when assembling these discs, they said, "Oh, we're going to concentrate on a number of the more popular songs." Although "I'm Only Sleeping" is not necessarily one of the more popular songs, but maybe they'd already figured, "Oh, well, we're, we're going to put the video out for that." Yeah, but I mean, you know, "Yellow Submarine," "Love You Too," "I'm Only Sleeping." Everything else gets a couple versions at most. And most get one, you know, Dr. Roberts. And- we move on from that to take six of Here, There, and Everywhere. Yeah. Not a whole lot to say. The version on the Real Love single, George Barton had flown in some extra harmonies from a different take, take 13. Uh, this is the bear version. Yeah, there's not really much to say about it. Uh it's cool. It, I like it. I think his voice is a little twee. <laughs> I guess you could say that as well, yes. I need her everywhere. And if she's beside me, I know I need never care. It's a little too sweet for me. I like this. They knew which one was right and which wasn't. I thought stripped back that we can hear a little bit more of the tune. The vocal is one thing, but the tune itself, you can really feel it a little bit more here, I think. Yeah. And e- even in the final version. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very pretty tune. And you get it with this version. It's just, I don't like the way he sang it. So. All right. We can take that. Or not. <laughs> then on to track 16, which is John's home demo, or most of John's home demo, she said, she said. Right. As mentioned previously, they cut off the front part. They Giles cut off the he said, he said version. And so this is kind of a Frankenstein of John's home demo. 
Yeah. And, you know, and that's unfortunate because, as I said, I, I see this in a way, the, the illustration of their experimentation. And by cutting that part off, it's like, no, he started with this other thing and then it developed into. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it would have been good to to keep it on because of that. You're giving us John's home demo, but it's already been bootlegged and it's incomplete here. And, well, okay, I would have rather had another take of I want to tell you or a full take of I want to tell you than kind of a minute, minute 10 of this. Yeah, but, you know, there are people who haven't heard this. And as an as I said, an illustration of of his point, I think, you almost have to have this on there. I mean, you don't have to take off too much in order to get other things. And I would have taken off one of the I'm only sleepings. And one of the yellow submarines. Yeah. You kind of get the point with the first three yellow submarines. <laughs> yes. Or take out the sped up yellow submarine. I was playing this in my car, and my son likes to listen to it. And we were taking a friend home. And after the first three yellow submarines, you know, he was quiet. But when it started again, (laughs) he's like, what is this? (laughs) Yes, it's the full CD, full (laughs) evolution of yellow submarine. I think it was his version of hell, actually. (laughs) complete with terry gar (laughs) yeah i should have said oh no listen this is the terry gar version (laughs) on the last track and and they knew this was the last track of the album because john keeps going on about come on come on this is the last track we gotta we gotta get going yeah we get a rehearsal of the backing track of of she said she said take 15 yeah and it, it's cool, cool to listen to. My question is, did they think that this was the final bass, or was their intent to re-record the bass? I mean, it's an okay bass. It's probably not up to Paul's usual standards. On this version? The bass from this version was lifted over into the final version. The way the evening apparently went now was, you know, they recorded the backing track, and they got to this version of the backing track, then at some point after that was when they had their Barney, as uh, Paul likes to say, and he walked out. Right. The other three just finished the song, but they didn't have another bass to go to. This was the best take that they had. So this is the backing track. This is the bass which went into the backing track. You know, I would guess that the bass was on its own. Darren Murphy was the one who said that he pretty much believes that this is the backing track. Okay. At least the bass backing. That it's pretty much the same. So it's, I guess it's possible that they had it on an isolated track and this was the mix down. They were all pretty adept at overdubbing, so it's hard to say. This is certainly a mix down of all of them playing at the same time. Right. This is something that they would have put together, listened to, and been trying to figure out what they wanted to do, either lyrically or with the harmonies or whatever. Right. Darren, and I have no reason to disbelieve Darren, says that the bass line here is the same as the one that's in the final track. I don't know if the rest of it is just buried or what they did to get from here to there, but it sounds close enough to me that I'll take his word for it. Then on to the song, which, as you mentioned, is missing. Why is there nothing of Good Day Sunshine? I don't know. The thing that gets me is that... 
the the harmonies are intricate enough to make me believe there's got to be some early versions where they're kind of working that out. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Then we lie beneath a shady tree. I love her and she's loving me. She feels good. She feels good. She knows she's looking fine. I'm so proud to know that she is mine. Good day, sunshine. 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 nothing else just the isolated vocal and harmonies there you go uh, you, there you know go. people have done that and that's on youtube and and that sounds really cool you know a maoized version of that would have just been not quite breathtaking but it's like you just to really hear their voices and they are all singing together like that right and then the interaction of the lead with the harmonies and you know well again is it a time thing why omit this track or did Paul ask them to omit it for some reason? I don't know. That's got to be a question somebody's going to have to ask somebody. <laughs> you know. We were talking about Broad Street before. Maybe Paul just didn't want to remind people of that awful version in Broad Street. I hadn't thought of that, but <laughs> it, that could be. If this keeps up, we're going to be in London until Boxing Day. I'm happy with the here, there, and everywhere, and for no one on Broad Street, but that Good Day Sunshine just doesn't work. Let's pretend it's not there on the outtakes disc. Yeah. but I doubt that that's the reason. I doubt that's the actual reason, but so that is where we're at. We are mostly through Revolver, although you want to talk a little bit more about the book next week. I want to talk a little bit, not too much, about the Atmos mix, which is really cool and does fix not quite fixed but it's you can tell that a lot of the things in the stereo mix were built for the atmos mix and then they just shifted it down to a two-channel stereo mix uh-huh. so you know when, when we talk about well th- this doesn't sound quite right well it sounds a lot better in the atmos mix we'll also talk a little bit about mccartney as a singles artist uh, in honor of the 600 singles box which some people have ordered but neither of us Right. And uh, we'll come up with some other stuff, but that's the plan for next week. Beatles hodgepodge. We've done that before, and we'll do it again, I'm sure. (laughs) So we'll see you then. All right. Very good. Talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, 
or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. The outtakes are like pencil sketches of the paintings. And we so we that's that's our approach. Like we're trying to go, this is how it developed. This is the this yeah. is in the humanity of the process of just going, what's the secret behind the Beatles sound? It's like it's the Beatles. It's the fact that the 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 four of them made such a great noise together. You know, it's a, there's not a button that was pressed. You know, that's the secret. And you listen to those uh, outtakes and you could hear. The collaborative process, it was still a very collaborative thing, wasn't it? I mean, there's a beginning of uh, Got to Get to You Into My Life where they're all talking about at what point they should all come in. And your dad's involved. You can, uh, you can hear John, you can hear Paul. And it, did you feel it was still very, very collaborative at that point? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was collaborative at every point. Through it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that, I think there, I think, you know, whatever happened in the studio was a very different, different journey. Um, when they were making music, I don't think they ever lost. And it's more so, and I, and I know when I speak to Paul and Ringo, and we listen to the albums and stuff, their admiration they have for the other players, just as, as a musician. Yeah. The admiration they have for the other players is, is, is unquestionable. You know, you know, it's like, well, you know, I mean, you know, Paul goes, it's interesting you hear, hear what George is doing here, or, you know, that, there is that, there is that, you know, there's no drum like Ringo and, and, you know, and, and that's so John or that's it's it's really they know now it was the best band they've ever been in, just as enjoying being in a band. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>